I believe uh, today's message, I hope, it will be a foundational message for your year. Uh, this is a significant psalm, and I hope this is a significant message for your life. Would you please turn to Psalm 119, but we are just going to focus our attention this morning on verses 129 to 131, and I'll explain why as we get through. Psalm 119. Verses 129 to 131, and the verses will be on the screen as we go through. And a big thanks to Sonny uh, for doing the projector this morning. I uh, gave him the world's longest manuscript, and he had to put it all in today. So any fault is my fault, uh, not Sonny's. If you'd like a title for today's message, I stole it from the Sovereign Grace song, which we'll sing after. Your words are wonderful. Psalm 119, verse 129 to 131. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I ask that you may bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, Michael Horton wrote a book called Ordinary. And the opening chapter of that book is gripping to me and I want to read it to you as we start a new year. Radical. Epic. Revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge, the next big thing, explosive breakthrough. You can probably add to the list of modifiers that have become, ironically, part of the ordinary conversations in society and in today's church. I'm guilty. Most of us have heard expressions like these so often that they've become background noise. We tune them out, unconsciously doubting what is offered because it becomes so predictably common. As my grammar teacher used to say, if you make every sentence an exclamation or put every verb in bold, then nothing stands out. To grab and hold our attention, everything has to have an exclamation point. We've become accustomed to looking around restlessly for something new. The latest and the greatest, that idea or product or person or experience that will solve our problems, give us some purpose and change the world. Although we might be a little jaded by the ads, we're eager to take whatever it is to a whole new level. Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church and has ordinary friends and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, and make a difference. And all of this should be something 
that can be managed, measured, and maintained. As we enter a new year, the excitement of the epicness of a new year might have captivated your soul. The, the possibilities that are available to you in a new year to start afresh, to do new things. Perhaps in your work, you might have new opportunities. You might have got a promotion. You might have got a bonus over Christmas. You think, what can I do with this money? As a teacher, you might have a new class and finally you got rid of that class and now you got the new fresh and you're hopeful. <laughs> As students, you might be, if there's any in the room, thinking, finally, I got rid of that teacher. Now I've got a new teacher. Even with church, new strategies, programs, ideas. We get captivated by the new. We have high hopes. But nothing might sound more ordinary, plain, and run-of-the-mill to you than reading your Bible. Psalm 119 is designed to remedy that ordinary feeling. It's designed to remedy this perspective where the Bible can so often become to us so uninteresting and so run-of-the-mill and so old hat and so normal that we've lost our perspective. Psalm 119, if you read it all the way through, you may be tempted to think this is just like the beginning of that book. Radical, ordinary, extraordinary, whole new level. There's a lot going on in this psalm. But truly, the psalmist doesn't speak in hyperbole. The psalmist, as he glories over God's word in this majestic psalm, is not overstating his case. And my hope, that as we study this psalm today, that we would have a refreshed and awakened perspective and love for God's holy word this morning that will go with us through our ordinary, most likely, 2023 and turn every ordinary day into something wonderful. Not because of our circumstances, but because of scripture that we get to engage with. This psalm, you may know, as I've said, is the longest of all the psalms. It's also the longest chapter in the Bible. It's a carefully constructed piece of Hebrew literature that is an acrostic poem, taking each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph through, I forget what the last one is, someone else can correct me, and each stanza, there's 22 stanzas, each one is eight lines long, and each one of the eight lines begins with the same letter of the alphabet. And the topic the singular topic of the entire thing is rejoicing over God's word. It's a love letter. It's a highest poem of praise rejoicing in God's word. He uses, maybe by coincidence or maybe by design, eight words to go with the eight lines to describe God's, war, to describe God's word. Laws, testimonies, commandments, word. It's all about God's word. One commentator said that uh, this psalm, it doesn't really have a strict structure or order. Uh, and that's right. It's not like reading Romans where there's this inferential logic that you're working your way through and you get to an argument. He said it's more like looking through a kaleidoscope. You know what it's like looking through a kaleidoscope and you spin the wheel, especially when you put it up to light and there's just glory and beauty and prettiness everywhere you go. 
That's how this psalm works. It, it, it just jumps everywhere. Like the psalmist, I love this, I love this, 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 this is great. That's how this psalm works. And all with one main intent, to awaken and refresh our love of God's word so that we would say with the psalmist in verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. And we would say it with no skepticism or cynicism, but truly. For this psalm is not just the musings of an ancient Hebrew. These are spirit-inspired words. This is God's perspective of God's own word. And it's here as a model to us, an aspiration for what we want our perspective to be of the word, even if it presently isn't there. So your 2023, it may not be epic. (laughs) It may not be radical. You might not go to the next level in 2023. But it can be wonderful. It can be wonderful. Because we have access to this book. Today we're going to discover this psalm in three points. Basking in the wonder of the word, point one. Point two, barriers to our wonder of the word. And point three, breaking through to wonder in the word. Let's go to point number one, basking in the wonder of the word. And we're just going to let the psalmist reflect and bask like Matt's prophetic impression was, just looking at the moon, not focusing on the tide. Read 129 to 131 with me again. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. In these verses, we embark upon two great themes that run throughout this very long 170-odd verse poem. Two great themes. Love and longing. Love and longing. Love for God's word and longing for God's word. Let's look at love first in verse 129. Your testimonies, he says, your words are wonderful. Now we hear the word wonderful and because that radical book, it it can just sound like, you know, so ordinary. (laughs) What's for dinner tonight? Spaghetti. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) What shall we do today? Go to the beach. Wonderful. Uh, That's not how this Hebrew word is used. This Hebrew word is actually a word which is astonishment. It's the word used for when uh, miracles happen. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea (laughs) with Pharaoh chasing them and they went through water and they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they sang a song and they said, your works are wonderful, i.e. it's a miracle. It's astonishing. This is incredible. This is supernatural. So when the psalmist says your words are wonderful, He's not saying they're pleasant. He's saying this is incredible. This is astonishing. This is a like a supernatural thing that I'm getting to partake in. This is like watching the Red Sea peel back. That's what it's like to read God's word. 
And I want us to survey some of the ways he strains language and repetition to express his wonder in the word. And I hope that as we bask in it, it will inspire you rather than condemn you. There's probably some here who'll be condemned because you're like, oh, I'm never like this. But don't let it condemn you. Let it inspire you. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian and the Spirit wants you to say these words like this. So let it inspire you to what you can be rather than condemn you to what you're not. I'm going to read a lot of verses. So let's go on a journey through Psalm 119. If you've got your Bible, let's start in verse 14. And we're going to go quick and then slow at points. We'll see how I go. Okay. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counsellors. Verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. That is when the psalmist has been away from Israel, been away from the temple, been away from God's people. His song is God's word. Look at verse 62. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. How many of us set an alarm at midnight? Whoa, yes, I love the law. Okay, back to bed. Do you know what? I was thinking about that during the, uh, as I prepared. I thought, I've never done that. And then last night, we left a window open. I was getting attacked by mosquitoes. And I woke up and I, it was 1 a.m. It wasn't quite midnight. But I was like, this is a chance. I get to put this into practice. So I was like, I was like, I love your law, oh Lord. <laughs> and went back to bed. But it was a moment where I got to put it into practice. So there you go. Verse 71. Look at this. This is his wonder. This is his delight. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It, was, it is good for me. That's how much he loves God's word. And remember, when he talked about law, testimonies, commands, he, he's talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He's talking about law and promise. So it's all of this scripture, and we can extend it to all the scripture. But he's saying... I'm really glad that I suffered because what I got from it, I learned God's word. And then, verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver pieces. If I would pay you $10,000 to not read your Bible tomorrow, would you take the cash? <laughs> That's tempting. It's just one day. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So descriptive and beautiful. Verse 127. Again. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, not just gold, fine gold. 
verse 140. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I love this. He's saying, this word has been road tested. We don't know when this psalm was written, likely after the temple, likely during exile potentially. And he's saying, these words, your promises, O Lord, have been well tried and tested and proven true. What you said to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what you promised to Moses, this has been tested. Friends, we have a book that's been here for two and a half, three and a half millennia. It is well tried. This is not a blog post or a New York Times bestseller that came out and will be forgotten in 10 years' time. It's well tried. We're not the first to see it. It's good, he's saying. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your birds. So instead of being in awe of the nobles of the land hating on him, he's in awe, in fear and in trembling of his word. I rejoice, verse 162, at your word like one who finds great spoil. When I read this, I thought of, you know, when you find a a wallet, What's the first thing you do? You find a wallet in the street. Maybe I'm a bad person, but I check for cash straight up. I'm like, what is in here? And you're looking for pineapples and avocados, right? You're looking for, you don't want the fives or the tens. You want the, the 50s and the hundreds. And you're thinking, maybe if I take this in, I'll be a good citizen. I'll take it to the police station. Hopefully there's no license in four weeks time when no one claims it. Boom. <laughs> He's saying, when I come across things in scripture, verses and promises and words. It's like I've found $100. It's like I've opened a chest and there's rubies and gold and, and rings. 167. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. He's straining, do you see? I obey your word, I put it into practice, and I love it. There's no, for the righteous saint, for the one who knows God, it's not like we we obey God's word, and then we do what we love. No, when we love God's word, we obey it, and, and the two work together. 172, my tongue will sing of your word. For all your commandments are right. And verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful. (laughs) The psalmist loves God's word. And he can't help but praise what he loves. Secondly, in these two short verses, 129 to 131, we see a great another theme that goes throughout all of Psalm 119. And this one will be a little bit shorter. The theme of longing. What the psalmist loves, he longs for. Because he loves God's word, he craves it. We crave what gives us joy. We crave what gives us comfort. We crave what gives us security and peace and hope. Do we not? Dark chocolate. Peace and quiet. Fine dining, travel, romance. 
Even saying those words likely conjures up some cravings and thoughts. And so it is for the psalmist with God's word. The thought of it, the absence of it makes him crave and long. Look at verse 131. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. It's such a visceral, almost animalistic image, isn't it? I open my mouth and pant. That's how strong is his desire for God's holy word. Let's survey some of the ways in which he says it throughout the psalm. Verse 20, if you flick back. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, let me not be put to shame. We cling to what we do not want to be lost. He's clinging on to the word in the midst of a circumstance where he might be ridiculed or embarrassed. Ah, I've got the word. I've got the promise. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. You imagine him just pondering, thinking, and then his mind happens upon the law and and the promises and the stories of the patriarchs. And God's good. God works, he's righteous, he's just. Comfort comes upon him. And you might think, oh, this is OTT, this is not my experience, this is nice for the psalmist, this poet, Uh, but this is not real life, is it? But it's actually the harsh realities of real life that likely has borne the psalmist's love and longing for the word. This isn't just musings and creativity of a a flourishing poet. This is born out of suffering. If you read verses 81 to 88, we won't do it now, but you'll see there, and you've seen many times throughout all of this reading, this is born out of suffering. If you look at verse 87, after he says he longs, he longs for your promise, how long, he says, they've almost made an end of me on earth but I've not forsaken your precepts. So he feels as if he's almost at the brink of death. Yet, (laughs) what does he want? God's word. And he put it all together in the last of all the stanzas in verse 174. He says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Love and longing. Delight and comfort. That's how the psalmist views God's word. And it's a Holy Spirit inspired guide and model for us to follow. This is God himself teaching us how we ought to view God's word for our own actual lives. This isn't like, oh, wow, that's really nice for him, an unattainable goal, like, you know, the model's, you're like, wow, that's really great that they can get that um, you know, physical appearance, but that will never be me. Uh, no, this is here 
as an inspiration and as an invitation for this to be more and more progressively our experience. Because why would we want it to be like this? What is this word that he's rejoicing over? What, what is the word of God? Is it just a book? Is it just human thoughts that have lasted a really long time? No, no. God's word is God's self-revelation given to us. God's word, this word is inspired by God, written by God through human authors to reveal himself to us. This is God speaking to us. Without God's word, we have no self-revelation from God. We actually can't know about God. The sun, moon and stars, they are great and they tell us wonder and majesty and power, but they don't tell us about who God really is or about how to be saved or about what God loves or what God hates. We need his word. J.I. Packer has famously said that scripture is God preaching. So if you want a sermon from God, read your Bible. His word is an extension of himself. That's why the psalmist can love it, delight in it, long for it, take comfort in it. Shouldn't those devotions and loves and longings be reserved for God himself, not his word? Isn't it idolatrous to have those types of verbal words used for a book? No, because of the nature of what this book is. It is God's word. It's his word and it's an extension of him because God is a word God he reveals himself in words he spoke and creation came to be Jesus Christ is the word of God Donald Whitney in his great book spiritual disciplines for the Christian life which I've ordered some copies of they'll be here for next week if you want to buy one said this No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. Did you hear that? There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from Scripture. The reasons for this are obvious. In the Bible, God tells us about himself and especially about Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. The Bible unfolds the law of God to us and shows us how we've all broken it. There we learn how Christ died as a sinless, willing substitute for breakers of God's law and how we must repent and believe in him to be right with God. In the Bible, we learn the ways and the will of the Lord. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that is pleasing to God as well as best and most fulfilling for ourselves. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. Friends, you could never become a Christian and escape the wrath of hell and the divine just judgment of God if 
We didn't have his word passed down to us to declare that we are sinners in need of a saviour, yet we have it. When the crowds and even a number of the disciples left Jesus, his teaching was too hard, his ways were too complicated, he was too offensive. Jesus said, well, are you going to go? And Simon Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. (laughs) That's this book. That's what we're coming to when we read the Bible. The words and only words of eternal life. Wonderful words. Lovely words. Words we should long to read. Yet, Donald Whitney continues, However, many who yawn with familiarity and nod in agreement to these statements spend no more time with God's word in an average day than those with no Bible at all. So even though we honour God's word with our lips, we must confess with our hearts or that our hearts, as well as our hands, ears, eyes and minds, are often far from it. The sad reality is, is that in practice, there are many places we go rather than to the words of eternal life for our comfort and our joy and our delight. You might be wondering, why is it so hard to read the Bible? Why is it so hard to enjoy reading the Bible? Why does my experience of reading the Bible not seem to really marry up with the love and longing of the psalmist? Well, that leads us to point two, barriers to our wonder of the Word. If you were tempted to take the 10K instead of reading God's Word tomorrow, you wouldn't be probably the only one in this room. Why is that? What's going on? Well, we have enemies. The Bible speaks broadly of three enemies that fight against us, that make the normal Christian life so difficult. And I want to speak about them today because I know that for many of us, our experience doesn't match on and we're probably confused and maybe tempted to give up or just settle for less. The Bible speaks of three main enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, conspiring against us. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3 speaks of these three enemies that we're liberated from them through Christ, but still their presence remains. We live in the world. We can't help but have to go to work and commute and spend nine to five or nine to nine, whatever your job looks like, night shifts and day shifts, doing these tasks where we are involved in a multitude of different things. The weeds and all that of life, the the daily grind of parenting and some of you mums and dads right now can't even listen to the sermon because that's just life. We're in the world. There's a barrier to our enjoyment of God's Word. 
the joys of this world can be a barrier. The, the heights and the, the pleasures and the, and the fun things can be a distraction. Our relationships, even church, even serving, we're in the world. It's a barrier to actually us enjoying God as we ought, especially some of the more you know, neg- potentially negative ones like television and, and social media, etc. But I want to focus on the next one, the second enemy. This is probably one of the greatest and the one that we don't think about enough. The world, the flesh. Number two, the flesh. The flesh, as biblically defined, are the sinful desires from our natural human nature that though we are liberated from the domineering power of our life through Christ, Romans 6, for example, still reign for supremacy over our heart. When we become a Christian, we are forgiven all our sins and the cords to sin, the domineering ruling power of sin, the chain has been decisively broken. We don't have to return to sin like we used to. If you're not yet a Christian, you're bound to sin. I'm sorry. And you need liberation. You cannot not sin even in your good deeds. The Bible says you're bound to sin. But in Christ, he severs it, breaks us free, but yet the presence of sin, the temptation of sin still remains until we die. Galatians chapter 5 pictures the, the battle of the spirit and the flesh so well. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. He's speaking to Christians. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There is an enmity. There is a war. The men have been reading this book called The Enemy Within by Chris Lungard because we have an enemy within. There's a fight going on. That's why it's so hard to read your Bible. It's not your fault in a sense. It's a reality. We're not fully, completely sanctified and cleansed from all of our natural relation, our natural sinful thoughts. That's why there's this battle, constant, and you feel it. In the book, The Enemy Within, Chris Lungard illustrates it quite well. Which is easier, he asks, to sit with a bucket of butter-soaked popcorn, it's a bit old, the book, and watch, although last year you could have done this, uh, and watch Tom Cruise on the big screen for two hours, or kneel and pray for five minutes. Tom Cruise wins hands down because there's literally no competition. What the flesh hates is God. So it resists anything that smacks of God, especially communion with him. The flesh can curl up by your side and watch mindless movies all night long, but let even the barest thought of meditations flutter into your mind and the flesh goes to red alert. Before you get past our father, Your eyes, which were glued to the screen, now sag in sleepiness. And your attention, which was so fixed on the plot, now zips around the universe faster than the starship Enterprise, which I believe is a Star Trek. You can feel the hostility of the flesh whenever you approach God. 
It makes real love for God or him into work. Digging around the Bible to find a juicy new insight to impress your small group is like sailing the Caribbean. But pouring over the scriptures to find the lover of your soul is like skiing up Mount Everest. Conjuring up a happy mood with some music you don't even know the words to is like solving two plus two with a calculator. But savoring the glory of Christ and his tender love until your heart is softened toward him is like using mental math to calculate pi to the thousandth place. The flesh hates everything about God. Since it resists everything about God, it resists every way we try to taste Him and know Him and love Him. And the more something enables us to find God and feast on Him, the more violently the flesh fights against it. That's what we're up against at 6 a.m. when we're reading our Bible or 9 p.m. when you're trying to do it before sleep or in family worship or whenever you try to come to God's Word, you're up against that. That's why it's so hard. Your flesh hates God. That's why Romans 8 says we must mortify it. We must put it to death because otherwise it'll kill us. The third enemy, the third barrier to your enjoyment and love and longing and wondering in God's word is the devil. Do not think that he is gone. Do not think he's in Africa but not here in Australia. J.I. Packer, in the foreword to R.C. Sproul's classic book, Knowing Scripture, which is another good book if you want to know a book of, how do I even read the Bible as just a normal Christian? That's a good one. You can borrow it. I've got it. He says, if I were the devil, please, no comment, one of my first aims would be to stop folk from digging into the Bible, knowing that it is the Word of God, teaching people to know and love and serve the God of the word, I should do all I could to surround it with the spiritual equivalent of pits, thorn hedges and traps to frighten people off. You have an active, dynamic, powerful, spiritual enemy who has legions of demonic angels against us. He doesn't need to possess you. Just needs to distract you. What was the first temptation that entered humankind? Satan curled up to Eve and said, Did God actually say? He attacked the word. The world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against you every time you try and open this book. That's why it's so hard. And that's why it's so important. So how do we break through? How do we overcome? How did the psalmist do it? How did he write this with any integrity? Point number three, breaking through to wonder in the Word. I've got two applications for us this morning, which arrive from the text. Firstly, it's going to sound ho-hum, but go with me. Prayer. We must plead before we read. You cannot actually 
wonder at God's word. You cannot enjoy it unless God makes it happen. The psalmist knew this. He knew he had to seek out and cry to God for God to give him the eyes to see. Turn now to verse 18. This is good news, friends, because this teaches us that this just wasn't natural for the psalmist. This wasn't just like, he was a really like loving God kind of person. No, he's just like you and I. So tempted, so distracted, so easy to do everything else but love God's word. Verse 18, he cries out, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your word. He knows he needs supernatural sight. If you experience constant barrier to enjoying God's word, the flesh, the world, the devil conspiring against you, then you need to pray like the psalmist prays. Oh Lord, open my eyes. Not just that I can do it as a discipline. Surely every one of us can actually sit down and read the Bible. That's not hard. Shouldn't be. We're human beings. We do lots of hard things. That's not the hard thing. The hard thing about reading the Bible is wondering at it, is enjoying it, is loving it and delighting in it and treasuring it and then obeying it. And so the psalmist knows, I need help. You need help. We need help. He goes on, look at verse 36 and 37. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Spirit and flesh. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist didn't find it easy. He found the wrestle every time. Oh, I just want to, you know, he didn't check his phone, but if he had one, he would have been. Oh, I just want to check. My, I'll just do this first. I'll just clean this first. I'll just do this job. I'll just get this done. I'll just look after this before. And he's like, okay, Lord, incline my heart. I need, I need you to change this wrestling heart of mine, this distracted heart of mine, and, and put it towards your word. And God, uh, turn my eyes away. I need to move from here to here. I need your help. You're a fool if you think you can do it on your own. You can't. If you're constantly battling joy in Christ, this is good news, friends. John Piper says this, over the years in my pastoral ministry, many people have complained to me that they do not have motivation to read the Bible. They have a sense of duty that they should, but the desire is not there. When I ask them to describe to me what they're doing about it, they look at me as if I've misunderstood the problem. What can you do about the absence of desire, they wonder. It is not a matter of doing, it is a matter of feeling, they protest. The problem with this response is that these folks have not just lost desire for God's word, but they've lost sight of the sovereign power of God who gives that desire. They're acting like practical atheists. They've adopted a kind of fatalism that ignores the way the psalmist prays. The most basic prayer we can pray about reading the Bible is that God would give us the desire to read this book. Pray, pray, friends, plead before you read. John Owen says it's a high provocation for anyone to partake upon the interpretation of Scripture and assume to gain insight or wisdom or joy from it. 
we're just but dust. We need God to teach us. We need God to incline our hearts. So pray, 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 pray. Don't give up on praying. Don't give up on hope. God is gracious and he will answer your prayer. Secondly, first we must pray. Secondly, we must plan. We must have a plan. If you aim to have a New Year's resolution to get more fit or lift heavier things at the gym and you walk around without a plan, you know what it's like if you've been to the gym, you kind of do some of this, do some of this, and do some of this, and then you're like, what's next? And then you kind of check your phone, do some emails, and I'll do some legs, and then I'll go on the treadmill, and then you go home, and no wonder nothing happens. But if you have a great plan, diet and and a scheduled time when you're going to go and consistently you do it, you will, your body will change. It's, it's, It's just the way God's made the world. It's the same with scripture. It's the same with our spiritual disciplines to come before God. But wait, you may say, this sounds like hard work. Shouldn't our love and longing come easily? If God's word is so good, shouldn't it be just like watching a movie? Why is it so hard? Well, we've looked at that, the world, the flesh, and the devil. R.C. Sproul says this, We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. The problem of slothfulness has been with us since the curse of the fall. Our labor is now mixed with sweat. Weeds are easier to grow than grass. Newspapers are easier to read than the Bible is to study. The curse of labor is not magically removed simply because it is the study of Scripture that is our task. It takes work. This is word work. Wrestling our souls into joy, searching the Scriptures Studying, what does it mean? Meditating on it, memorizing it, applying it, sharing with others. It's hard work. Don't expect it to just be like, woo, all right, reading the Bible, that's sweet, my life has changed and fantastic. I put it into practice and I'm good. That's not how it works. It takes work. The psalmist in verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He makes a commitment. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He's, he makes a plan. He's studying the word. He's memorizing the word. He's, he's committed to it. Don Carson has said, people don't drift toward holiness. We drift towards all manner of sin and all manner of unrighteousness, but we don't drift towards enjoying God. We drift away. Therefore, we have to go after it. Again, John Piper says, When my sons complain that a book is too hard to read, I say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. Friends, you need a plan and you need to work hard because if you dig into God's word, you might find diamonds. But if you just rake around, ah, a verse for the day. Okay, it's good. You get some leaves. <laughs> but digging, 
that's where the that's where the glory is. The psalmist wasn't raking around. He's digging. Therefore, because we're in this war, because the flesh rages and, and Satan rages, we need a plan. We need to know, and you need answers to these questions. When are you going to read and study the Bible? When is it going to happen? At what exact time will you do it? Where are you going to read and study the Bible? You need to know where you're going to do it. If you had to just figure out what gym you're going to go to every day, so like, well, there's a lot of them. And then you've got to you know, like, get a membership and a token thing and find out. You need to know where you're going to go. Thirdly, you need to know what are you going to read. Just flicking around, it's, it's not how the Bible works. You've got to study it. You've got to go in. You've got to go, I'm going to read this and choose to read Romans for a month or choose to read the Psalms or uh, choose some kind of plan that will help you. And you need to determine beforehand, how long am I going to read for? Am I reading for one minute? Am I reading for 15? Am I reading for an hour? Remember, we need a plan. Otherwise, the flesh will win. Satan will win and the distractions of the world will win. You might have heard of various Bible reading plans. There's one I did last year called the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. It's pretty epic. It's, it's probably too much. I didn't finish it. But I introduce to you now a new Bible reading plan. It's called the Vargordi Bible reading plan. And uh, Andrew came up with an idea over the summer uh, for a simple Bible reading plan for the church. Uh, just simply that we would read one chapter of the New Testament a day and one chapter of the Proverbs. And in 260 odd days, you'll have read the whole New Testament, you've read the Proverbs a lot of times. <laughs> I said to him, look, send me an email, I'll think about it. I don't want to commit to it right now. And then over the past three weeks, I've been doing it. I've been reading just one chapter of the New Testament, one chapter of the Proverbs, a bunch of the guys in my growth group, we've been doing that as well, at least the Proverbs part, and it's been really good. So if you want to sign up, we're going to create a WhatsApp chat where the Var Gordy plan will be there. And, uh, and then every day you just say what chapter you read and say done. And you don't need to discuss it or anything, but just something to help you commit and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to study. I'm going to work at God's word. And I'm going to be encouraged by other people to do it as well. Now, there's so much more we could say about this. I want to recommend two books to read. Um, if the pictures are there, hopefully. There's one book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. It's a classic. It is brilliant. I've ordered three copies of it, so they'll be here in the bookshop next week. Um, the other one is a shorter book, so if you like, shorter is good. Uh, there's called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Again, that'll be in the <clears throat> bookshop next week. I, I want to serve you. I want you to be in the Word. I want you to be delighting in it like the psalmist. <clears throat> and so there we go. There's Habits of Grace and then the other one, Spiritual Disciplines. If, it, um, if they would serve you, that would be great. If you're unsure how to read the Bible for yourself, ask someone who you think is a Bible reading person. 
Ask someone to teach you how to dig for the diamonds. Ask the Pettits or CJ or, or Roman or Joel and Jamie or Mel Coe or Andrew Vargordi or someone you know who's a Bible reader and say, can you teach me? What do you do? Even if you've been a Christian a very long time, if you're consistently unsure of what to do, ask for help. All right. I'm going too long. But this is so important. Church, we can't grow. We'll go nowhere spiritually this year. Unless we're in here. This is the most important spiritual discipline. You've got to get it right. And if you get it right, if you get into it, then God's word will be to you a constant source of wonder. You gain joys like you've never gained before. It's unchanging. You know, last night I, I, was, I had an unexpected setback and it made me reflect, well, the word never sets back. It never changes. It's always good. It's always reliable. God's promises, they're there. The gospel never changes. So you get into the word, whatever else, whatever the storm, it's here, it's written, it's sure, it's firm, it's good, and it's there for the taking. So friends, will you take it this year? The world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring against you, conspiring against me. I want, and I want you to want to want to love and long for God's word, and so would you pray, open my heart, incline my heart, open my eyes, and would you plan? Would you go for it? And I anticipate that God will bless us richly as we go for it. We're going to sing. We can't not sing this song. So we're going to sing, your words are wonderful. And make this your prayer to the Lord. And as the band comes up, I'll pray and ask God to do the impossible. God, I pray and ask that you would do what we cannot do, what I cannot do for myself or for my friends. Would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law? Would you incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain? Would you turn our eyes from the many worthless things that are just so interesting and captivating and easy and would you lead us down the hard paths and hard work of studying your word and would we find the diamonds and would it change our lives and I pray this in Jesus name amen